This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me as we travel through time and space together. Before I get started on today, I want to say a big thank you, as always, to the people who show their support for the podcast series that Paul and I do here by signing up to my Patreon.com site. It's that financial support uh, that makes everything else possible. So if you're a member there, thank you. If you're not a member yet and you'd like to be and help to support the whole endeavour, go to Patreon.com, look for me by name, you have to part with a bit of cash, and you become a member of the family. You get exclusive access to question and answer sessions, vodcasts and podcasts, and whatever else crosses my mind and Paul's mind that we get done uh, you know, during the course of a typical week. Uh, the Patreon members are a great bunch. We consider ourselves a family of curious questioning types uh, with an obsession, or at the very least, a, a, a fascination for history. Okay, that's the publicity out of the way. It's now time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Dissent, discord and religious unrest is bubbling up across Europe. Islam's power and reach is growing. To cement its supremacy, the Christian West crowns a new leader. Charles V becomes Holy Roman Emperor. And for the first time in the history of the world, one man holds sway over an empire where the sun never sets. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the world. Hi, Neil. Last week, we travelled to Germany in the year 1517 as Martin Luther was kick-starting the Protestant Reformation. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. Well, this week's episode is set in the same period, but we're now in Italy and Bologna. We're also in Aachen in Germany. It's a couple of decades after that pebble dropped into the world pond by Martin Luther. The year is 1530 and the seismic shocks that that Luther set in train are still rippling across Europe. Europe's now facing a double whammy, threat from religious dissenters within and the growing strength of Islamic territories beyond. To help pull Europe together, the Pope and the powers that be want a strong, unifying leader at their helm and the man chosen for the job is about to be crowned Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. (laughs) 
We're in Aachen, which is um, a German city, and it's well, it's connected with Charlemagne, Big Charlie that we've already discussed previously. Today, we're with another Holy Roman Emperor, a more recent one, if you like, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. He is the first ruler anywhere who can be said to have ruled an empire upon which the sun never set. Obviously, famously, that was said about the British Empire, you know, when we turned a quarter of the planet pink, you know, in terms of the colour on the map. And obviously, Queen Victoria ruled over an empire on which the sun never set and all of that. But Charles V was the first who was, for one reason and another, which we'll get to, was in a position where effectively, you might say, his arms encircled the globe. It's quite, quite extraordinary. A bit of background. Ever since that aforementioned Charlemagne, Big Charles, in 800 AD, there had been a holy emperor of the Romans in the West. Charlemagne was crowned as emperor, holy Roman emperor, by Pope Leo III in that year, 800 AD. And from that time onwards, there was an emperor, a restated emperor with um, ambitions to to be again what the Romans had been. The ceremony for Charles V happened on the 23rd of October, 1520. And it took place inside the cathedral in Aachen. The ceremony was presided over, not by the Pope, that would come, but on the 23rd of October, 1520, three bishops were there to officiate and to see that the imperial crown was put on the head of Charles V. Uh, it was all spectacularly grand and significant. You know, we've just had a, the coronation of King Charles III here in London. Well, this was you know, all of that ritual and, and, and symbolism and more besides. He was seated upon Charlemagne's throne, the same throne that Charlemagne had occupied in his time. It was positioned beneath the, the very distinctive octagonal dome of the Palatine Chapel in Aachen, right close by the sarcophagus containing the bones of Charlemagne. So everything about it was was saying that I am, everything that Charlemagne was, you know, I'm inviting you to, to, to imagine that I am his, you know, heir and successor and, and all the rest of it. Charlemagne himself had organised the building of part of that cathedral, uh, the, certainly the chapel in which he himself, you know, featured... He'd ordered it in 796, he'd commissioned it, 796 AD. And two years later, in 798, Alcuin of York, who was the same, that's an, uh, that should be a familiar name for uh, for listeners to the love letter to the world. It's the same Alcuin of York who had famously lamented the desecration, the violation of the island of Lindisfarne by the Vikings in 793 well, by 798, Alcuin could report to the world that the work on that building was almost complete. And so by 800, it was, it was ready to roll. So that's the background. It was all about saying that everything that Charlemagne has been, we're still here, we're continuing in that grand tradition. By 1520, when Charles V was so crowned, it was only, well, let's say, half a lifetime since the fall of Constantinople in 1453, which we've also looked at. So less than a lifetime since the head of of the emperor in the east had been 
severed by Muslim scimitars and paraded on a spike. So that's the empire and the emperor in the east that, that fell in that moment with the, with the death of that emperor, Constantine. This is a period that's loaded with, with moment and, and significance for Christendom. That first ceremony with the three bishops, barely a decade later, in 1530, he was crowned again by the Pope, this time Clement VII, and that, that ceremony took place in the San Petronio Basilica in Bologna on the 24th of February 1530. So it, it, it was all kind of done again with the Pope, because having the crown placed upon your head by the Pope added that bit more authority than it's having been placed upon his head ten years previously by the bishops. But even more symbolism, uh, before the, he was, obviously it was an imperial crown that was placed on his head to mark him out as emperor, but before that went on his head, he was crowned with the Iron Crown of Lombardy, which is a different bit of kit. And the Iron Crown of Lombardy, believe it or believe it not, was in, in part, well, it, was, it was iron, but it was also encircled by a thin, what appeared to the, to the naked eye as a, a, a thin silvery thread. This component of the Iron Crown of Lombardy was, as far as the faithful were concerned, it, well, it had been beaten out of a nail, one of the nails from the true cross. So one of the very nails that had pierced the flesh of Jesus Christ had been reworked, flattened on an anvil with a blacksmith's hammer until it was a silvery thread that could go around the Iron Crown of Lombardy. So think about the significance of that. You know, imagine seeing something like that go on to the head of a, a mortal human being. Imagine being that man and knowing that your head was encircled by metal from a nail from the true cross. So much reverberating significance. You know, you must have, the whole place must have been vibrating with the significance of the moment. By being made emperor, crowned again by Clement, the Pope, it mattered in every way. By taking part, by agreeing to do that for Charles V, Clement was declaring the need of a peace accord to keep the Christian West together. It needed religion. The empire of the West would be kept together by religion. And this was, this was all happening in this moment of this crowning in that place. And Clement was also saying, quite obviously, that Charles V was the man that was needed to perform that role. Like the keystone of an arch, or the, or the pin that was holding the whole structure together, Charles V was that man for Christendom. So there, was, there were kings in Europe, but he was an overarching... Yes, he's the, he's the emperor. For those who care to believe it, for those who care to accept him, he is the top dog, the numero uno, the dog's bollocks. He is, he is it. He's the daddy. And it, it mattered because of when it was happening. Just the year before, which is to say 1529, the Muslim sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, there's a catchy name, Suleiman the Magnificent, an Ottoman sultan, so the same Ottomans that had taken Constantinople in 1453, right? So Suleiman the Magnificent is, is in that lineage. In 1529, just the year before the crowning of Charles V, Suleiman the Magnificent had brought an army of at least 100,000 Muslim warriors, maybe more, all the way to the gates of Vienna. Okay? He, he, he had had ambitions to 
to take Vienna and to use Vienna as the base for f- further incursions into Europe. You know, the, the Muslim invasion of Europe was on again. But it was defied. Vienna was dug in. <laughs> they, they, they repaired the walls around a sort of hard core, uh, I think around the cathedral in Vienna. Right? So they, they pulled back within Vienna to uh, a citadel and they, they reinforced the walls and they, you know many feet thick and all of the rest of it. So that defence of Vienna was, was, uh, was actually choreographed by a, a 70-year-old German mercenary, Niklas Graf Sam, who had a few years previously distinguished himself in command of Christian troops in, in another battle. He had just 20-odd thousand defenders, but he managed to drive Suleiman the Magnificent and his considerably greater force away from Vienna. And so once again, the threat of Muslim takeover in Europe was averted. It's worth remembering all of that was going on because it gives you a sense of what the religious climate was like in Europe in 1530. It was threat all around. It was half a lifetime since the fall of Constantinople. Now, just the year previously, the same Ottomans had been all the way to the gates of Vienna. In the same way that the defences were reinforced at Vienna, the Pope is shoring up the defence of Christendom by making a big show of the significance of of the Emperor. Um, there's even more religious... It's, there's, so, there's so much going on at that time. Uh, Luther's... The impact, remember we, just last week or the week before we were talking about Martin Luther and the 95 Theses and how he was pulling the Catholic Church up for failing the faithful and taking the wrong path. Well, all of that impact was still reverberating through Europe. Luther had nailed his thesis to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517. But by 1530, the aftershocks of the Reformation are absolutely still going on. All the way back in 1521, Charles, who the year before had been crowned by the bishops, so he was already the Holy Roman Emperor, he had summoned Martin Luther himself to what is remembered by historians as the Diet of Worms, uh, which is a, a, a gathering, a court, a, a conference, a coming together of the great and the good. And he had drawn Martin Luther there by promising him safe conduct, and he was as good as his word. You know, Martin Luther might have been a bit concerned about showing himself, given his reputation, but Charles was as good as his word, gave him safe passage. But there in that public place, Luther would not back down. So Charles outlawed him. Uh, I've got the words that he pronounced to Martin Luther. You know that I am a descendant of the most Christian emperors of the great German people, of the Catholic kings of Spain, of the archdukes of Austria and the dukes of Burgundy. All of these, their whole life long, were faithful sons of the Roman church. After their deaths, they left by natural law and heritage these holy Catholic rites for us to live and die by, following their example. And so until now I have lived as a true follower of these our ancestors. I am therefore resolved to maintain everything which these my forebears have established to the present. And so saying, he he made an outlaw of Martin Luther. What he's saying, what Charles Charles makes implicit in that statement is that it's religious unity that holds the empire together. We can't have you fracturing Christendom. This splitting into Catholic and Protestant, we can't have it because it's only by being together as one that we will maintain the empire. And 
apart from anything else, as we said at the top, it was an empire upon which the sun never set. Greater than anything that anybody else had achieved, greater than the Persians, greater than the Romans, greater than anything by the Mongols under Genghis Khan, this was an empire on which the sun never set, such as its spread around the globe. How did that happen? Well, his mother was Joanna. Joanna was the daughter of King Ferdinand of Aragon and Queen Isabella of Castile. And from them, okay, he holds, get this, both Spanish kingdoms, Aragon and Castile, the Kingdom of Sicily, uh, and all the Spanish holdings in the Americas. Okay? His father was Philip the Handsome, eldest son of Maximilian I, and he had been Holy Roman Emperor prior to Charles. And from Philip, Charles inherited the Low Countries, so the Netherlands, Holland. And from his grandfather, Max, a whole swathe taking in Germany, Austria, and Northern Italy. Okay? So that's, the, that's just some of it. You know, that's what he gets directly from his mother and from his father. Charles was part of the Habsburg family. Now, the Habsburgs, that was one of the two great houses that between them dominated Europe from the 15th century onwards. The Habsburgs were German-Austrian in terms of their origin, and they were rivals to the French house of Valois. But the Habsburgs are one of the two big houses. And by Charles's time, by the 16th century, the Habsburgs were dominant. They had the upper hand in comparison to their French rivals, the House of Valois. Charles's brother was Ferdinand. Ferdinand was king of Bohemia, Croatia and Hungary. And in due course, Ferdinand would succeed Charles as Holy Roman Emperor, bringing those holdings to the table as well. But <laughs> listen to listen to what Charles is anyway when he's when he's emperor. He is king of the Romans, emperor elect, Semper Augustus, king of Spain, Sicily, Jerusalem, the Balearic Islands, the Canary Islands, the Indies, and the mainland on the far side of the Atlantic. So the Americas, Archduke of Austria, Duke of Burgundy, Brabant, Styria, Carinthia. Carniola, Luxembourg, Limburg, Athens and Patras is the Count of Habsburg, Flanders and Tyrol is the Count Palatine of Burgundy, Hainault, Fürth, Roussillon, Landgrave of Alsace, Count of Swabia, Lord of Asia and Africa. <laughs> right? All under, all under the control of one human being. It's really quite extraordinary. Now, obviously you can imagine at the time there was no way you could have the state capacity meaningfully to rule such a territory. What are you going to do? There's no email. There's no satellites. There's no internet. There's no telephone. There's no... How can you, how can you realistically say, you know, from your imperial throne in, in Bologna or in Aachen that you run America and that you run Asia and you run Africa? Apart from anything else, a lot of people said that he lacked... He, he didn't even have the linguistic skills. How can you be king of all these people if you don't speak all of those languages? And in response, it's quite funny, Charles said that he spoke Latin to God, Italian to women, French to men, and German to his horse. <laughs> so, yeah, a sense of humour as well. But what he did have, if he didn't have the state capacity, the reach, in any meaningful sense, he did have all the ambition, and he did have all the self-belief. People have said that some entities are too big to fail. They say that about the European Union. Too big to fail. Too many vested interests, it can't be allowed to fail. But 
The fact of the matter is, you know, here's the number of it, really. Whether you call yourself uh, Holy Roman Emperor or not, I always say, maybe too big always fails. Maybe that is the lesson. And it's especially pertinent in this 21st century. Because if you can be too big in the 16th century, perhaps you can be too big in the 21st century as well. So those forces that are out there machinating for centralised control, one world government, the lesson of history is that as it has before, it will fail because too big always fails. How did it fail? Well, the Holy Roman Empire is no more, (laughs) is the point. For all the ceremony, for all the ritual, for all the history, for all the ambition, for all the endeavour, for all the effort, the Holy Roman Empire, like all the other empires, is gone. They all go. The Persian, the Roman, the Ottoman, the British, whatever, all empires fall. All attempts at centralised one world government in the past have fallen. It's my prediction that whatever anyone has planned in this 21st century, in due course, it will fall again because it's in the nature of being too big. The earth was round, that much was known and had been for centuries. But by the early 1400s, no one had managed to travel all the way round it. The planet was still unconnected, mysterious. Learned Europeans of the time only knew a world of three continents, Africa, Asia and Europe. But the push for profit and the need for spice propelled exploration. And Magellan and Elcano set off to circumnavigate the planet. A deadly voyage. Only one of them would survive. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.